This is the Wandering Berry Center podcast. I am your host, Brian. Over there is Alex. Hey, everybody. Um, I took a picture of the grocery store today. I thought it was pretty funny. Free range milk chocolate raisins. Huh? <laughs> Wait, so like the grapes are um, able to run around? So that was my initial. That was how I <laughs> approached it. Turns out the name of the company. <laughs> Or the coffee, the or the, the cocoa beans in the trees, you know, just, they're free range. Yeah. <laughs> so the company name's free range? Um, so it's actually the company is free range snack company, but I still thought that was dumb. That is dumb, and I feel like they know exactly yeah. what they're cashing in on there. Did you look to see what other products they have? Nope. I think I lost Hang you on. lost me? Just... Yeah. Damn it. Can you hear me now? I don't know. Yeah, I can. Keep going. Huh. Um, so that's a good segue. Uh, <laughs> I guess we're, we're leaving some, that, huh? uh, Yeah. We're, uh, well, yeah. We we have some situational differences as far as Alex's setup. He actually just posted right. the Instagram. <laughs> um, it's quite crude at the moment. Let's put it yeah. that way. So... For a second there, the, hes- the hesitation was him uh, on, on the recording software. I didn't. He started slowing down. It was pretty funny sounding. Hmm. Yeah, I'm in between housing situations at the moment, so I'm crashing at a buddy's house, and my setup right now is rudimentary at best, and the connection is also, you know, not amazing. So things might happen, and you might get some weird ambient sounds and. You know, my friend groaning in the background, for example, might happen. Who knows? Um, (laughs) But yeah, this house that I'm in right now is in rural farmland, Michigan, which is an interesting place on its own. But then the house itself is like, oh, man, I think he thinks that it's built in like the early 1800s. That's Um, awesome. Yeah. So we're dealing with a house that's like over 150 years old. It's (laughs) really, it's really cool. Yeah. Like. (laughs) Just think about that. This house has been... Yeah. St- <laughs> that's a long-ass time, man. Yeah, that's... And to still be going. You know, Dude, it's so one, cool. It, there's this one room downstairs where there's double doors going into the room and just, like, the, you know, the, the woodwork around the doors you would never see in a house today, at least a normal house. And it has these really cool, like, really satisfying locks. Each one has this, like lock that you got to kind of like unlatch and pull down and move out of the way to open the double doors and it's just it's just badass (laughs) makes the satisfying sounds when you use the lock and and all that so yeah it's cool that's funny you brought up the locks because i have a friend uh his house sometimes i spend or i watch it for him and it's a nice house and money Mm -hmm. was spent and mm-hmm. one of the things I noticed right away was how smooth and pl- a pleasure to use the the door controls, the locks, and everything. Yeah, were. yeah. And you could you just you grabbed onto it, and you're like, oh, that costs a lot of money. <laughs> one area you don't really think about investing into, but when you come across a good one, yeah. So uh, yeah, free range snack company. But still, they're did making... you buy the did you buy the raisins? I did not. Oh, okay. No, they better be good. A, uh, I, I don't know. Milk chocolate raisin, I'll be honest, that's not a 
No, I don't really no, like raisins that much, those. and I'd way rather have dark chocolate than milk chocolate. To be fair, I'm looking at the ingredients of them right now. Other than the soy letkin, letchin, mm. how do you say that? Yeah, something like that. Uh, other than that, and obviously some sugars, you know, it's chocolate. Um, yeah, it is. It does look fine, but anyway, thought that was funny. Based well, on there shouldn't be much in there, but you never know these days what they hide in there. Okay, um, I think we can. Sorry, I just lost my notes. There we go. Okay, um, you good to get moving? Yeah, let's do it, man. Okay, um, so. I went with uh, Ralph Nader this week. Whoa, okay. So, this guy's probably a trip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, it was really interesting, actually. So I'll start with a bit of context. Well, let me just, so I don't know much about him. Yeah. Let me just lay out what I do know. It's probably going to be he, similar to me because yeah, that's how I started down this path. Yeah, anyway. Okay. So all I, all I can really say about the guy is... And I don't even know how true this is, but he's run for president like every opportunity that he's had, I think. Um, and then I also just know the unsafe at any speed car, you know, controversy where he basically got seatbelts mandated. Um, so you do. OK, that was one of the things we were going to cover in some okay, detail. Cool. Um, so I can speak to that. That's about it. <laughs> good, because I wanted to. I. That was actually one of the more fascinating parts, in particular, his uh, argument about the Corvair. But mm-hmm. uh, we'll get there in a second. So the president thing, running at every point, and that was basically my understanding of who he was, yeah. was that he was Is a Is that actually true? Yeah. Now, run at every opportunity does, I wouldn't say. Well, yeah, case. that was being dramatic, but... <laughs> um, so he's, you know, he's a politician and an activist, I would say, Um and people people initially were like, no, you are running for president. Like, they told him he was running for president, basically. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so he... Um, so he didn't even really want to? Uh, not... I think he must have had aspirations to do it at some point, but initially in the 70s when he was first approached, he was not really into it Interesting. at that point. He was like, I, that, I got other things to do right now. Hmm. So, but he is a controversial figure for sure. And the whole running for president thing, at least in, when we were growing up, I don't know. He guess I guess he was just kind of a, it was a funny thing to me that here's yeah, this guy was, who's running for president all the time and never yeah it does was anything. Like you knew the name, you knew he was running, but you knew nothing was going to happen. Right, like he wasn't going to win, or you know, he was just like so, the other guy. Yeah. So not only does that statement, which is how it was for me too, sort of, it's exactly what he was fighting against, and. Um, or why he was running, maybe. Uh, yeah, so I, he's he's an interesting guy. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm ready to learn right. more. Well, he turned... Yeah, so um, he... Let me see here. Where should I... Okay, so he was born in uh, 1934, February, in Connecticut, to uh-huh. Lebanese in- immigrants. Well, that's interesting. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> that um, is interesting. <laughs> Okay. So his father worked, once he got over here, um, his father worked uh, at a textile mill and then opened his uh, own bakery and restaurant after working at the textile mill for, uh, I think, a half a decade or so, maybe. Um, and then so that 
was you know from there they were they were doing pretty well mm-hmm. the bakery and the restaurant did pretty well so he worked uh ralph worked at uh there first and then he went off sure. to princeton and uh, he also went to harvard and Dang. he served in the army for a little while after harvard um mm-hmm. as a as a cook for uh i think like a year i'm just gonna move this laptop it's turning away from the mic because my laptop was anyway so something really interesting about um the princeton situation and that i think kind of sets up his philosophies in life and you can see kind of who his father was mm-hmm. um he was offered a scholarship to princeton and his dad made him turn it down because they could afford to send him there and the, fa- the father said that it's the scholarship should go to someone who can't afford to go there but deserves to go there dang that's pretty stand right? up right really that's that's yeah. very, very that, at least that's the that's the story cool so, so you're yeah, saying that's, that that's where he get you know gets a lot of values from his father. I would in that think respect, so. Probably. I would. Yeah, I would, would think so. Yeah, I'd imagine. Um, I thought that was a good place to start because it definitely yeah. some of the things that Ralph ends up doing with his life, you could see where that's coming from. Mm. Um, however, <laughs> a diversion from that. Sorry, we can say that. I was just going to say, you know, from our perspective, where we probably couldn't afford to pay for princeton maybe that's a lot easier of a decision to make when you can true statement, true statement. <laughs> but either way it would be easy to accept it and harder to turn it down so they took the, yeah. the harder route so yeah yeah he still chose the more difficult way mm-hmm. um so once he got to harvard though uh one of the things i read about him was uh, he quickly became bored with the courses he was taking and he would skip large chunks of school and hitchhike across the U.S. And he was like studying, apparently studying Native American and, and uh, migrant workers' hmm. rights issues. He was studying that at Harvard or studying that on his own time? On the road, hitchhiking around. Hmm. What was he studying at Harvard that was so boring? Law. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's his educa- education and, and sort of where mm-hmm. he came from. Did he do, like, one degree at Princeton and then go over to Harvard, or did he transfer, or what was the deal? I think that's the case, yeah. Um, Yeah. I didn't actually get his first undergraduate degree, but Mm -hmm. then he went for a law degree. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Damn, Harvard Law. That's uh, pretty up there. Not bad, right? Not bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got accepted there, but I turned it down. <laughs> so I did go to Yale instead. The um, So let's talk about... Uh, so yeah, not much after he graduated and, and served in the Army, he wrote that mm-hmm. book, Unsafe okay. at Any Speed. So And do you know like he, what his motivation was to, to go after that or kind of where well, he got started? That's open, and I, I'd be curious... Just as we discuss this, that mm. that seems open to interpretation. It's interesting. He makes a. I mean, I wonder if it was just like a hot topic at the time, and he just saw an opportunity, or did he have some previous vested interest in this for whatever reason? I think. Um, hmm. I don't know. It's. Yeah. He makes a move later on in the story around the book that. Uh, kind of i don't know it it both 
supports and uh, decreases his uh, standing. Hmm. Sorry, I was adjusting a setting on the computer. I think I hear. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a note that the noise that you heard just now that then went off was the fact that there is an air register right next to me, which I didn't notice. So when the heat comes on, which it will again, you're gonna hear that, and that's just well, that's the nature okay, of this cause... episode. <laughs> that's okay because I think my landlord just turned on the dryer, nice. and I can just hear this low <laughs> noise. There's gonna be a lot of background just like humming. I'm pretty sure I can see. <laughs> it's oh, all good. Man. It's all yeah. good. Yeah. Part of the process. Yeah. So anyway, so the book. Um, yeah, because yeah, he he does something later where he makes some money and he mm-hmm. gives the money to nonprofits, but they're his nonprofits that are forwarding his advances, so or his ideals. But ultimately, he's a very opinionated guy, and he does mm-hmm. a lot to f- progress those opinions. And and so like his opinions, in my opinion, are admirable, mm-hmm. but he definitely is aggressive in his. Uh, or was aggressive kind of forcing and, them onto others a little bit in a way but yeah. it's it's hard to say that the things that he was doing didn't help out pretty much right. everybody well yeah so should we describe kind of what the book was yeah or, so the book or the topic the book was essentially uh an expose on the car industry at least the american car industry to, uh their apathy towards safety Mm-hmm. And how they were not embracing uh, new technologies and, you know, uh, new ideas and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And improving and particularly, their cars. particularly American manufacturers. Yes, yes. Um, and I don't know, it's interesting. I have some thoughts on why they might have been doing that. Because I don't think America was alone in this, uh, in this issue. So, no, prime exam- the chap the book was laid out into like ten chapters. Um, in mm-hmm. fact, I almost read it. it. Didn't look that long, but I didn't have time. Anyway, um, it was broken out into chapters, and each chapter was like, "Here's this particular problem. We're going to talk about it however long." Mm-hmm. So, anyway, chapter one was the Chevy Corvair. Yeah, and this thing, the first model, 1960 to 1964, or mm-hmm. I suppose 1963, 1964, I believe was the when it was fixed i think doesn't matter anyway a couple of years this car was being built before they changed it so the first version of it had some serious issues mm-hmm. uh one yeah, of which basically the, the suspension right you know, so the, this this car um yeah so this is a 60s car built by chevy um and one particular thing that made this car unique is that the engine was in the back so most cars, you know, they put the engine in the front. This one had it in the rear. Um, not, like, the first one to do that by any means, but still less common. Um, and that wasn't necessarily the inherent flaw, but no. it wasn't designed well. Uh, and just everything considered, uh, one of the major drawbacks of this car is its tendency to roll over. <laughs> so, at least the early iterations of it. Um, I believe that was one of the issues, right? Sorry, say that again. Was the the tendency for the car to roll over? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Got a little <laughs> bit there. Oh. That's um, right. So well, and 
Do you know why? Because the the way the suspension was set up? Mm-hmm. Do you have details on, on the suspension setup that made this happen? So, I don't if you were recall. if you were looking if you were looking at the back of the car, imagine you're staring at the the back end of the car. Rather, the, the suspension, the pivot points, rather than a traditional axle, the pivot points of this thing were, if you'd imagine where the drive shaft in the center of the car is, hmm. each axle was its own. Each side of the the car had its own arm that had very little controlling going on. So it was basically just like two lollipops sticking out from the center of the car with the wheels at each end, of course. And the ability for them to f- basically flex in any direction, mm-hmm. and just—I wonder if they were. I've seen setups before where the axle actually, they try to use the axle as a, um, you know, a suspension member, basically to limit a, degr- a degree of freedom, and maybe that's what they were doing. I'm not not entirely sure. Um, I'm not even sure there were. This part I'm, I'm speculating on, but mm-hmm. the the springs that were ultimately putting pressure on the system to keep it in place i don't even think we're it would i think it was using leaf springs um they didn't look like they were even there in the diagram i was looking at but anyway so you could turn this car pretty hard to one side and the way the suspension the amount of movement it had you could basically roll through to the tire through the tire and catch the rim and break the bead of the tire and and flip pretty easily yeah which um that was the you know. charge, anyway, in his book. Okay. There, so, was there any... Um, I'm sure there were claims, whether it came from Chevy or, or others, that, you know, that information was false and that they exaggerated the issue? Of course. Dude, yeah. people are, to this day, are heated about this book. Okay. I, I imagine. It's pretty And, of course, the car industry, which I, I got a couple facts on them, uh, they did not enjoy this at all. Mm-hmm. this book <laughs> um, so swing axle suspension is what the suspension is called that was such a problem the car mm-hmm. had no front stabilizing bar also known as an anti-roll it did not have there any of those that's a problem. Required... So front, when you add a uh, front stabilizer bar so just what that does so for example the Buick I have um, you could say it's actually quite similar so it has it's an independent rear suspension but so a little more sophisticated than what this Corvair has, but no anti-roll bar in the back, but it has one in the front. And what that does is, um, in an emergency situation, if the tires lose grip, you know, you put in too much steering input for what the car can handle, uh, that front roll bar is going to make the car understeer. And what that means is you turn the wheel X amount, and the car isn't able to steer that much, so it's just going to slide forward. Right. Which is a much safer situation than oversteer, which if you put in too much tire input or steering input, rather, the car overcorrects and spins out. So by adding a bar to the front the and not one to the back, um, it creates that safer situation, basically. Right. Um, so it gets a lot worse, though, for this car. So not only was this <laughs> the suspension an issue, but one of the ways, well, from the factory... The tire pressures they recommended were outside of the tire manufacturer's spec sheet. Oh, so really? The shit. That's this is the charge again. Yikes. There's there's plenty of argument on the um, merits of some of this, but the tire pressure thing yeah. seemed to me. How could you? You can't really ignore tire pressures. 
their their calculated thing. Anyway, what the claim is though is that um, they would have such a differential in the in the front. Uh, I think fifteen psi in the front, twenty six in the back. Cold. Fifteen. Um, so this was to stiffen up the rear suspension, basically, and then. So with those tires, that was the correction essentially from the factory initially to sort of correct the suspension problem. But then well, it's you... probably also to offset the weight of that car with the engine in the back, right? And no, probably thought into weight distribution. That car has probably got sixty percent of its weight over the rear wheel at least, right? And so, so these these pressures came from the factory. But then the tire fan manufacturers found that if you put uh, like three, three people in the car, two passengers, your rear tires were now at risk. If you set it to what the factory said, we're now at risk of popping. Hmm. Yep. <laughs> there was an unadvertised at cost option, part number 696, which included new springs and dampers, front anti-roll bars, and rear axle rebound straps to prevent the tuck under. This was apparently oh unadvertised in the initial run of the cars that were the problem. That was offered from the beginning, though. Yep, unadvertised for some reason. Uh, so they knew it was a problem. They knew it was a problem, right. And that's the nature of the book, is that there's problems <laughs> and that they know they're problems. If you, so those straps... What that is, is literally a strap, it's like a, like a seatbelt, <laughs> that goes from a fixed point on the frame to the suspension arm, just to keep it from drooping so much. You would use those on a, today, you would use those on a lifted off-road vehicle that's super jacked up, and you just don't want the springs to fall out when you flex it out, so you put these limit straps on to keep the suspension from articulating too much, but... Man, if you ever tried to sell a car today that <laughs> had limit straps just because it was a design flaw. Yeah. That's crazy. So he starts the book with the Corvair, and it seems, <laughs> you know, doesn't look good. Yeah. Um, then there's other things in the book, which we'll, we'll move past the book, except for... So essentially he would also touch on, um, like the 50s Bel Airs and stuff, you know, those really yeah. flashy cars. All those fins are daggers, basically, and oh, the, insides yeah. of the, the insides of the cars and their dashboards are not designed to have your, smash, your face <laughs> smash into them. <laughs> Dude, it's actually insane. When you, I if mean, you they're go, literally, like, go look at a 57 Chevy Bel Air, the top trim. It's got spikes coming out of the front. <laughs> <laughs> But at the same time, it's it's beautiful. So yeah, it's yeah. kind of a, what do you value, I guess? Do you value human life, I guess? <laughs> or do you think that the car looks cool? <laughs> uh, um, yeah. It's it's incredible. And he's, you know, he's not wrong about those no, early that's cars. That's totally the, a, a valid thing. The book, though, it came out in 65. And if mm. he's making... I, I guess I should have looked up. Maybe you could tell me, actually. That's probably what I was thinking. You know, by 65, were the insides of the cars not death traps? At least as far as spikes are concerned? Um, come 65, and you definitely have a lot less of the flashy 50s chrome right. and, you know, right. kind of 
a lot of this dressing that went on to cars that was completely unnecessary. So that was way toned down. I don't know if it was safe because of this <laughs> book necessarily. It definitely wasn't. The cars were not any safer. The cars really didn't get safe until, um, I would say, until, uh, you know, crumple zones were introduced. That's when cars actually became safe. When they was were that? designed to start taking impacts. Um, probably somewhere in the 80s, okay. uh, mid, mid-80s, mid I would, I would think. I'm not sure. I'm trying to think early 80s and mm, probably not because they were still oh. selling. But yeah, I mean, basically crumple zones being um, these areas of the car that are just designed to, to absorb the energy when you crash. So, right. But yeah, as far as the interiors in the 60s, um, things got a lot simpler, but I wouldn't say it was any more safe, really. <laughs> okay. Well, that Because cars were still being out the built the same right. way. Why? What were you yeah. going to say? Well, I was just thinking that maybe... So the book came out in 65, and I was just thinking that mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're ragging on a 57 car, if you were to look mm-hmm. at a 63, was a 63 significantly safer than a 57 such that the book didn't have an... I, the book absolutely, and we'll talk about the impact in a second, mm-hmm. but it absolutely had an impact, but I wondered if the car manufacturers were already on the up. Um, I mean, it's hard to say because I'm looking at it with the perspective of something that didn't yeah. exist at the time uh-huh. the book was written, right? So right. at the time, maybe it was, but I also think in something you mentioned early on, like... Um, I think it doesn't really there's there's no incentive for the car manufacturers to start implementing these safety features unless they're pressured by some outside influence, right? Because it costs extra money, development, resources, et cetera, to do this. So if they can get away with not doing it, that's like the nature of capitalism. They're just not gonna do it. It's it's <laughs> so funny it takes that you something brought that like up this to, because... to come along. Right. I um, I had a similar uh, thought about uh, safety in racing. So mm-hmm. people did not safety has always in in a seemingly backwards way. It's always been a struggle up until maybe in the past ten years did it finally really maybe twenty become a serious thing. But for racing, especially in the motorcycle world, but I'm sure the car world too. I just I don't know that one as much. You know from the when they started racing in basically right away, the Model T, they were like, dude, let's race this. <laughs> let's, let's race this shit. <laughs> um, so basically right away, uh, safety was terrible. And like 70s, 80s, early 90s, you know, at least in the motorcycle world, they were still racing on tracks with walls that were like a foot away at certain spots. And, you know, in the 70s and 80s, there were trees that you could still run into. And, you know, and the riders were always bitching and complaining, but... Safety was still a slow uh, crawl. Okay. Had a minute. We're back. Or I should, <laughs> not a minute there. We had a, a moment is what I wanted to say. Mm-hmm. So I think I was rambling about motorcycles and um, Yeah, you're and talking how, about the, uh, the adoption of the safety. Yeah. Just so ultimately to me, human nature is uh, weirdly adverse to safety improvement. well it's not sexy it's not a yeah it's not really something anybody really gets excited about or at least not most people i should say 
Um, so reaction to the book mm-hmm. uh, wasn't well from from the car industry. It wasn't good. Um, yeah, they, they were getting called out hardcore. <laughs> yeah, they were getting called out pretty hardcore, and GM hired private investigators to dig mm-hmm. up dirt on Nader, and they. Oh, like tried to call his family you know they did all kinds of stuff um start harassing him a little bit when they yeah when they didn't um when they didn't uh get anything they ended up going with uh trying to get prostitutes to solicit him and then you know since they knew that was happening because they paid these prostitutes to do it they could then get Mm. evidence in one way or the other okay so nader goes to his senator uh ripikoff i think is how you say that and says, hey, I think I'm being followed, and I think there's some shit going on here. So that guy, that senator calls in GM president uh, James Roche, or Roche mm-hmm. maybe, um, who was placed under oath and had to admit that everything I just said was, in fact, true. Wow. So Nader sued and got $425,000. This would have been in, like, 66 or 67. That's a lot of money. What's that like? Over a million dollars? Yeah, it's probably a million bucks today. Um, And so this is that move I was talking about earlier. He took that money and rather than just, you know, spending it on himself or whatever, I guess in a way he spent (laughs) it on himself. He had set up some nonprofits by this point. And so he used um, that money to fund those projects. Okay. Makes sense. So then the government reaction to the book was much better, I suppose. And this is where, you know, his like aggressive nature and all these things, you, you then compare it to the results and you, depending on your, I guess your political mm-hmm. views, um, you can look at it and say, that's not too bad. So the Department of Transportation arguably resulted from this book and the controversy around it, uh, the formalizing of car testing practices, um, all kinds of stuff was... Um, yeah, I mean, it was pretty much unregulated yeah, before. The National Traffic, all this, the National so. Traffic and Motor Vehicle Safety Act is basically a direct result mm. of the book. And so things like seatbelts, um, there's something called the Nader mm. Bolt. Have you ever heard of that? Um, no. The Nader Bolt actually is, I guess, prior to the book, doors had the ability to just unlatch themselves. And so an extra bolt <laughs> was put in place so that uh, I didn't look up exactly how it works but essentially this large extra bolt um, mm. is is another level such that the door unless the latch is moved you know the door won't open assuming the bolt okay. bolts I guess but you know it's not going to break so bef- prior to this you could just push on the door hard enough open. and it would yeah. potentially open Roll, you know, like yeah. if you had a rollover nice. the doors would just fling open <laughs> so and to give you know, the car manufacturers the benefit of the doubt here. And this may or may not be true, but it's possible, you know, that there are things that they didn't think about. Or, yeah, yeah. you know, just, but then, you know, it's it's probably not likely that all these things were considered at one point in a board meeting. They were like, no, don't do that because it costs right. money. You know, some of them probably, but maybe not everything. So I, I tend to agree. And not we, we'll move on to the rest of the things he did. But, you know, yeah. on the one hand, though, 
certain aspects of the car industry had not changed. If I understand things correctly, maybe there wasn't actually a board meeting, but if the stories are true, the whole uh, GM ignition switch situation such, was such that two engineers mm-hmm. said, hey, this is a problem. They looked at how much mm-hmm. it would cost to buy a new version of the ignition yeah. switch, and they said, nah, we'll, we'll let it, we'll let it, you know end up murdering a couple people pretty much yeah i mean money makes people do bad yep. things um i mean that's the whole the whole pinto situation I was gonna ask right what with the gas thought. tank and the bolt and so do you think the pinto i was gonna ask that do you think the pinto um was a, a boardroom meeting decision or did they it was that a mistake absolutely okay. no they calculated the cost of a human life and decided that the cost to fix the car did not outweigh you know it was going to be more expensive basically to fix the cars and redesign than it would be to pay out for all of the accidents liability and deaths that would happen because of their design flaw they figured that out that calculation and decided so 100 percent that do you think is one of the most fucked up stories in all of car history. So do you think they considered the intangibles as well, such as, hey, have you heard that Pintos are exploding? But as I thought... <laughs> um, No, I don't... I actually, Because I'm pretty sure, and I could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure there's like a balance sheet you can look at from them that's public where you can see the breakdown and i don't think things like that are necessary like brand impact for existence or for example aren't really in there they were kind of just hoping that this wouldn't happen enough for it to be uh uh you know negative to the brand yeah um and they were just hoping to to ride it out and let it be dude i saw a picture on the internet just the other day of um it was from, you know, uh, an old picture of some lady standing next to a Pinto, and on the back of the window, it was something written. It was like... Um, Don't hit me? It basically, it was like, back off or I might explode <laughs> or something like that. Basically, don't tailgate me, because if you hit me, you know, I'm lethal. <laughs> it's like, Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, that's that's a bit nuts. So, you know... Mm-hmm. They definitely had issues. Ultimately, the book... Uh, I, I mean, it's a good thing, I guess, really. I could definitely see why, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure some things were over-exaggerated, but clearly, there, you mm-hmm. know, there was smoke and, generally speaking, fire. Um, so... Well, I wonder, That's you know... Industry. Again, it's not just... I don't think it's just the car industry, though. You talk about... I'm sure there's... I'm sure there's problems with, like, big machinery, like Cat. I'm sure Cat had some safety flaws here mm-hmm. and there that... You know, mm-hmm. so it's not just them. Well, when we get to my topic, I think it'll okay. it'll reinforce. Speaking of which, we should start. We should get a move on here. Um, so yeah, that was the book, and that's how he entered the the public stage, and it was pretty aggressive and pretty mm-hmm. controversial. There's so much hate. So that's where he. That's when people started to get to know yeah. who he was. Yep. Um, yeah. And I went on YouTube and I watched a couple third party videos about the Corvair, and like they did some tests. And all mm-hmm. the YouTube video comments, which is normal, they're all terrible, but this was no exception. Just people hating on Nader, and this is fake, and this is bullshit, and so many yeah, people so yeah, aggressively no. defending a 1960s piece of shit car. Like, yeah, why? Why, why, why? why? 
so much anger on the internet. It's, it's incredible. And in fact, there's an entire website devoted so easy to, to be hating angry. Nader. And it's, <laughs> of course there is. It's, amazing. it's called Nader's Skeletons or something like that. Anyway. One of my favorite things about the Corvair... Is its name? Is... Sorry. Um, the name's yeah, crappy, yeah, yeah. sure. But um, no, it's... So the engine, not only is it in the back, but it's like a flat four or something, or a flat six, I think. Um, so the cylinders, you know, are horizontal, or parallel, rather, to the ground. Um, and I forget what component is on top of the engine. It might be like a, I don't know, some belt-driven component, whether it's the alternator or water pump, I don't remember. But there's a, so there's a component on the top of the engine where the pulley is parallel to the ground and then there is a, another component on the back of the engine where the uh, pulley is perpendicular to the ground these two components share a belt oh yeah so it's this thin little v-belt and it literally travels and makes the 90 degree turn when you look at the belt you can see it twisting to then reach the top pulley and I don't know how long that belt lasts on there, no. but whenever I see one, it's it's kind of interesting to look yeah. at. That's gross. Um, uh-huh. So some other uh, activism that he uh, is known for. In 68, uh, he recruited seven volunteer law students, dubbed by the media, not by him, Nader's Raiders. <laughs> and their most notable achievement, okay. I suppose, is they called out the FTC, and the the Federal Trade Commission, I believe, is what that would be. Um, yeah, I think so. So it didn't go well for the FTC. And it was uh, <clears throat> their report prompted an investigation by the American Bar Association. So then they looked at Nader's report, said, oh, my, we should go look into that ourselves. They did. That ultimately led to Nixon, per- well, personally, you know, actively intervening in the structure of the FTC and... Cho, you know, just did a whole clean out and um, mm-hmm. set the whole place on a new path towards uh, consumer protection rights, things like antitrust laws and safety laws for consumer goods and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, so previously, mm-hmm. the FTC was, if I, I didn't make it clear, uh, full of corruption and people stealing money and doing all sorts of st- fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Not really doing anything useful. No. And then, yeah, so... Um, his his name I actually I wrote out uh, what all these uh, acts do, but we're probably just going to breeze by these. So his name, his efforts are basic are directly involved in the creation of the following pieces of legislation: Clean Water Act, Freedom of mm-hmm. Freedom of mm-hmm. Information Act, Consumer Product Safety Act, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, Whistleblower Protection Act. And said earlier, the National Traffic and Motor Vehicle Safety Act. The theme here... Now, I don't know the details of all of those, but they sound pretty significant. Uh, yeah, and, and all of them do pretty much... You know, the Clean Water Act, I, like I said, I wrote down specifics, but it's exactly what you imagine. It's to make sure that our drinking mm, water yeah. is safe. Right, I guess that's the one I'm most familiar Freedom, with. Yeah, we did a... Yeah. Um, mm. Freedom of Information Act, that allows you to subpoena the government and say, I would like to read this document. It's been poisoned by the ability to redact, but that's another conversation. Consumer Product <laughs> Safety Act, exactly what you might imagine. Uh, no lead in your mm. lead in your paint. No, uh, you know, helmets actually are tested. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, 
Practices Act, goodness. Um, that's the, uh, what the heck is this one? Oh, bribery of foreign officials, and it was, uh, it's not very exciting. Oh, well, it's important, but it's not as exciting. And it made, um, made a, a, a department transparent in terms of their reporting. And then the whistleblower mm. protection. We're good on that one. So he's really trying to look out for consumers, he's really. He's very motivated to help the populace, it seems. So, you know, you can't... Yeah, make sure that, you know, you're not... Basically, I shouldn't have to be a car expert to buy and use a vehicle right. that, you know, that is safe yeah. for me. I should be able to trust that what I'm getting as a service is, um, you know, safe and of my best interest, Especially I guess. when something as prolific as the automobile, you know, is, is a... Right, or water. <laughs> or, right, because, you know, the government's literally building roads. It's an, actually an interesting relationship. The government builds roads for something that they don't make money off of, really. Like, you know, the government doesn't sell a car. I and mean, they get taxes from the car sale, I suppose. But no, but I have to freaking pay tolls all the time. You do, but that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess not in Michigan, but I will have to yeah. soon. It's annoying. So on to uh, his presidential stuff. So he was kind of offered in 1971 when he was 37 years old to run for the named New Party. Um. He declined. Wow. Really put some effort in the name. Yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> it's not that one. It's this one. It's, it's pretty lazy. One. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and needless to say, he you know he he didn't jump on that bandwagon. Okay. Uh, Ninety-two people started writing him in in a couple different states, but he wasn't really like. I don't know. Not, he wasn't really campaigning. If that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. So 96 was his first official, I suppose, I, I desired to run uh, moment. And so he was the Green mm -hmm. Party candidate for the 90, you know, for 1996. He qualified on the ballot in 22 states and he got fourth overall nationally. Wow. So it's interesting. I mean, he pretty much gets put into this position of running due to a popular demand. Not a vote, but a demand, yeah. But then he doesn't end up winning. Is that because of his party affiliation and the way our whole system works? Is that there's really no way he was going to win because he's not associated with... Keep, keep that thought. Keep that yeah. thought close. Um, oh, I got it. <laughs> it's a problem, right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And even in 96, he still wasn't all that. Just from reading about him and, and reading about that election, he didn't seem all that jazzed up about that one even still. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, uh, it takes a lot of money, time, and effort to run and campaign, and campaign, excuse me, but I don't recall him ever, like, being all that, you know, yep. in the news or whatever, as far as a large campaign and, and whatever. So in 2000, that to me, just from reading about it, seemed like his, uh, when he really started taking active participation in his running, so he was actually campaigning, and he actually stated that mm -hmm. basically by 2000, um, if you were to track the years that those different acts were posted, uh, or I'm sorry, made law, 
by 2000, he was frustrated that his ideas and his, he was frustrated that his activism was not at the same pace as it was a decade ago. So he decided to do something about that. And his idea was, okay. you know, his decision was to run for president. That's so 2000 to me seems like the real earnest go at it, but he stuck with the green party. Um, and then that was his way forward. So he was actually campaigning. Um, he would actively call both the Demo- So he took the position of attacking both and he would call them institutions dominated by corporate interests and they're corrupt and all these things, which I didn't, this part's going to get inherently political. So I'll try to, that was his charge against both the Democrats mm-hmm. and, you know, and the Republicans is they're both terrible. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's that famous thing about uh, the founding fathers saying that a two-party system's not good, but argu- yep. arguably they didn't maybe do much to prevent it. But anyway. I was going to say they didn't really, that didn't stick. <laughs> um, so in 2000 was the whole Bush-Al Gore thing in Florida. Mm-hmm. And Nader is, if you wanted Al Gore to win... You would, you would blame Nader for the votes that he quote-unquote stole in Florida. That's such a load of shit. So that is, uh, well, that, yeah. <laughs> so How does that make any sense? So I've got some stats on it. Um, let's see. Bush beat Gore by 537 votes. I believe that's the first. Yeah, it was like so minuscule, right? Yeah. yeah. Nader got a total of 97,421 votes. So Nader definitely, okay. quote unquote, I'm not even going to say that, um, had more votes than the margin of, of victory. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but there were also other people in Florida that had more than 500 votes. So Nader wasn't the only one <laughs> mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah. Um, there, this is a quote by him. I didn't, I didn't. That's insane. If, if that's your issue, don't let more than two people run. I suppose. Yeah. If you're going to complain about it, you know, when it's convenient to complain about it, then just don't let it happen in the first place. Definitely. (laughs) So. (laughs) Sorry. That's just really messed up. It kind of is. Uh, and he, he was quoted as saying that there were a quarter of a million Democrats in Florida people that identified as Democrats that uh, also voted Republican that in that election okay. that chose Bush over mm-hmm. Gore. So his mm-hmm. he, he came back at the haters with uh, some stats and whatnot. Um, I didn't look into sure. that stat, so I can't I can't independently verify it. So I'm not as I'm not as good as NPR, but um... <laughs> so it was funny because after this and people still hate him to this day for this uh this whole Bush Gore thing. That was another, I mean, it's, if it's not the Corvair controversy, it's the, this, this controversy people, there's so much hate on the internet. It's insane. Dude, is this like a racist thing? Like what's going on here? Why is there so much hate for this one person? I don't know. I mean, I don't, I'm not getting it from what you're telling me here. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that other than, uh, there's just people out there that like to get mad. Because that's the thing is there's there's yeah, hate on the for internet sure. for that's almost for sure. everything. So for anything, yeah. So for during everything. this whole or after this, 
or I suppose during it, during the recount, you know, once it, once that was obvious that Gore wasn't going to win, or I'm sorry, that a recount was needed, you know, the, the mm-hmm. news cycle and all those things, Nader was ex- often expressing his hope for a Bush victory over Gore, even though Nader is more closely aligned with a Democratic point of view, saying mm-hmm. that a Bush victory would mobilize people and that environmental and consumer regulatory agencies would fare better under Bush than Gore simply out of like fear and and uh basically the motivation of our guy didn't win we've got to do everything we can to get shit done even though that's an interesting perspective okay yeah um when asked which of the two he'd vote for if forced nader answered bush if you want Hmm. if you this is a quote if you want the parties to diverge from one another have bush win as to whether he would feel regret uh anyway so ultimately, his point was that the Democrats will go even further to his ideals, his liberalism, if you will. Right. If Bush won, because they would, the divide would get deeper. And, and I think it's like taking one step back to go two steps forward right. is what it sounds like his logic is. I would, I would argue that uh, he's probably right about that if you look at today's divide. Mm. But anyway. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that all happened. Obviously, we all know how. The recount went down. Um, mm-hmm. He got third place nationally, 2.74% of the popular vote. So that's wow. how not even close ever he was going to get it. Right. So, and that's how I kind of understood it, is that even though he was third place, it was not. And that's how it goes anyway, right? Has there ever been a third place that was like, whoa, we, that person got a little close? I didn't look into that, I don't but think so. I don't think so. I just don't. Maybe back so. in the maybe back in the very early days there was, but yeah, like Washington had two competitors. Maybe <laughs> actually he had no competitors. So two thousand four, um, this is funny. Uh, Ralph Nader and Democratic candidate John Kerry had a widely publicized meeting early in '04. Nader said that John Kerry wanted to work with Nader and get his support and like not you know basically avoid two thousand, basically incorporate mm-hmm. Nader. Um, and get his followers to come along with the Democrats because two point some odd percent. If it's a tight race, that's that's you know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And so, this is according to Nader. He um, he asked John Kerry to choose any three issues from a list of twenty. Uh, I'm sorry, more a list of more than twenty pages. That's this. This is the claim. He said, pick any three of those, include them in your platform, your campaign platform, and I will help you. Kerry did not do this, so Nader ran against him. This guy's kind of fucking hard. Like, <laughs> he's kind of sounds like a badass. Like, he just is... Yeah, I don't know. Um, Doesn't mess around. The, the effect that people labeled him with is called the spoiler effect. So in Florida, mm. he spoiled Al Gore's victory, if you will. <laughs> Of course, um, yeah. Yeah, so in 2004, all kinds of people were hating on him. Uh, he got 0.38% of the popular vote, still good enough to place third. So less than half a percent mm. total. So a huge down, down, you know, basically. It just shows, yeah. yeah, yeah. 2.2% loss in, in from 2000. Uh, so then 2008, he ran again, and he got half a percent, still third place. 
And so then he stopped running for president. So the fact that those types of numbers get you third place... It's pretty crazy. Begs the question why anybody would even bother. So it's funny. Um, Which I guess it's probably out of principle because that's really all you have. In 2016, Nader wrote a an op-ed or whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah. Talking about Sanders, Bernie Sanders, and how his decision mm-hmm. would was different from his in that Dem- uh, Sanders ran as a Democrat, even though he's not really a Democrat. Um, mm-hmm. Nader said that that was the right choice and that he had actually been wrong back in the day to run. He, as should, a- have, he should have aligned with one of the two. He says he, from a pr- uh, practical standpoint, ultimately is the article's his his right you know i think nader's morals are probably too stern right. to let him do exactly. that <laughs> exactly yeah but ultimately in 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 this election uh the the 2016 election he he yeah he wrote an article to say that right um it's the only, only way to do it so he said some pretty inflammatory things uh in this article i'm gonna quote one of them um i believe that clinton should overcome sanders and claim the Democratic nomination... Oh, wait. That should, sorry. I believe that should Clinton overcome Sanders and claim the Democratic nomination, the party will continue to be the champion of war and Wall Street. Little change, hmm. little changed by the primary competition. So, yeah, he's, he's... That was kind of a common, you know... That was the common uh, rhetoric, I guess, yep. right? Yeah. Is that she wasn't going to well, no. bring any yeah. mem- or, uh, recognizable change or anything meaningful? Right. Um, so yeah, that's all I've got. Um, I actually, I suppose my last point is it's interesting. You know, he's got all these things about him that it's he's a very controversial figure. He's mm-hmm. I ended up writing at the end of this. You know, he's just as ravenous for uh, his version of power as any other politician. He's very aggressive. He doesn't necessarily. Uh, I don't think he was never really shooting for power in the I guess the traditional sense, like didn't necessarily need to be president but he was very hungry for change well right. and, he had yeah. those views and yeah well i mean from from what you've laid out it all seems fairly positive i mean how what's your takeaway at the end of this are you like yeah i dig you him. Know, on his side or are you like more towards writing hateful youtube comments <laughs> I mean, i'm never above a hateful youtube comment <laughs> sometimes it feels good to just you know log let into your youtube account and just let it go um no ultimately i mean politics aside honestly like just his he seems like a you know a morally straight dude as far as my compass yeah. is concerned i can't really say that i'm sure there's moments he had of, of weakness or or shittiness mm-hmm. or whatever I'm, mm-hmm. i guarantee that's the case in fact because i bet he's yeah. a human being um Sure. But yeah, ultimately, uh, I think he did a lot of good things. I mean, just the list of the, those legislations. How could you? Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And he went about it in via the system. He went and he, he got those laws into into writing and, and like you know he. I don't know. Seemed seemed all right. Yeah, I I can't disagree. Um, all right, so for, for my topic here, and the way I'm going to draw this Barry Center is, um, just like there was no, 
meaningful regulation around cars and safety. Currently, there's no um, effective regulation in safety placed around um, electric mobility scooters in cities. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah. So have you heard about these? I have, in fact. Uh, Yeah. They are taking... They are insane. The the storm, you know, these things are just taking over, basically. Um, and so what we're talking about here, for anybody who's not familiar, um, typically in big cities, um, basically there's these companies that are deploying fleets of electric scooters, like stand-up scooters, but think of a Razor scooter with an electric motor um, that you can just use at your free will to, you know, navigate the city. Um, and there's a lot of controversy around these because, A, the safety thing that I mentioned, so they're just kind of... They go fast. You know, Let me unregulated. They go fast. And <laughs> they go fast, and there's really no way to enforce the rules that these companies try to place. Um, but the other side of things is the whole business model and economics around these is just like we've never seen before so it's pretty intense um so i guess we can just kind of since you're a little familiar um we just kind of have an open discussion about these i wrote down some facts about about them um and what really turned me on to the whole subject i haven't used them myself full disclosure so um yeah i don't think i have a bias towards liking them or disliking them i have no experience so i can't really and i don't live in a big city so i don't know (laughs) i've seen them in operation many times uh and i mean if i had paid for the app i could try one i have not actually tried Mm -hmm. um and actually over in europe i uh they have they're not motorized but they have bikes that operate the same way yeah so it all started it definitely started with bikes in terms of these so what you're going to hear a lot um i use the term i think already micro mobility Okay. I don't know if I said that already, but micro mobility in the sense that physically the thing is small, right? But it also allows you to um, traverse smaller distances, right? You're not necessarily going to travel from New York to Boston on, on <laughs> one of these little scooters, but you might navigate from your apartment to work or whatever. Or to the grocery store. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So it's micro mobility is a term you might hear. Um, the also the other term is last mile solution. Yep. So. Um, you know, let's say you take a bus to the nearest bus stop to your work and then you snag a scooter and you go that last mile or roughly um, to get from the bus stop to work. Um, so that type of thing. That's the market they're trying to fill. Right, exactly. Um, and that's part of the thing is that these scooters kind of fill that space beautifully. They do. Sure. So, you know, if I'm... You know, if I just need to go from my apartment to work and I live a mile and a half and maybe normally I'd ride a bike or whatever, but let's say I'm not going to do that. Um, calling an Uber, I don't necessarily need a full-size vehicle to go that distance, right? It takes time to call the Uber, money, the driver, the whole thing. And it's just not, it gets you there, but maybe it's not the best solution. So the the scooter is just way faster and it's more, you know, up to the scale of the task at hand, I guess, than a full-size vehicle. 
Yeah, I would think. Um, so. Yeah. So, but just like Uber, it's a form of ride sharing, right? So the the general business model of this, um, and I didn't realize this ahead of time, but they're referred to as dockless. Do you know what that means? Yeah, they don't. Uh, they don't have a spot that you place them. Uh, yeah, necessarily. Exactly. You literally so, can just pick up and drop anywhere. Yeah, Denver has a system mm-hmm. called the, the bicycle, like a hard okay. B. It's, it's kind of weird. Anyway, they have stations, <laughs> so you you pick the bike up from mm-hmm. it's like a, this special bike rack that has an electronic yeah, lock and all right. that shit. Right, that I've seen. And you 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 can ride the bike from any one station to another, but the, the you mm-hmm. have to bring it back ultimately. Right. Um, the scooters yeah, so, and whatnot, you just <laughs> throw into the middle of the street. Yeah, you literally put you kick the kickstand if you're generous and you and, put it anywhere and you walk literally away anywhere dude people leave these things all over the place that's part of the problem <laughs> but um and we'll get there with the pros and cons but so as far as the business model goes yeah so these things are dockless they're electric scooters the the customer basically has i mean it's extremely convenient in the sense that you can just leave it up anywhere and pick it up anywhere yeah i mean you um, just imagine you you you're on this thing, and you pull up right to the grocery store, right to the front door, Yeah. walk two you feet leave to the left, there. and just drop it and go inside. Right. And, and if you decide that after you've done your grocery shopping that you want to Uber now because you've got, you know, six bags of groceries... You're good. Fuck the scooter. Who cares? Just leave it there. Yep. <laughs> Somebody might have even come and taken it by that point. It might already be gone. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically the way this works, if we're playing the role of the customer. Um, so I have to download an app on the phone, on your smartphone. So you need to have a smartphone for this. Um, and all these scooters that are just placed around the city are, you know, they have a GPS chip in them. So when I load the app, I can see where the nearest scooter is. I come up to the scooter and it's going to have a little uh, QR code on it that you can scan with your phone using the app. And when you do that, you basically unlock the scooter. And you pay a dollar to unlock the scooter. And then all of these companies are exactly the same. A dollar to unlock it and 15 cents per minute of use. Um, so not only does the GPS tracking you know, allow a user to find it, but it also prevents them, theoretically anyway, from stealing it. Right. So the company knows where their scooters are at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of, by, by using your cell phone to unlock the scooter, you've now created some sort of accountability link to the scooter, um, at least during your time of use. Um, yeah. And then you just, you just ride it to wherever you're going and you pay that fee. You have your credit card hooked up, of course, and, and that's it. You stop it wherever you're going, you know, want to drop it off. So, um, one thing that's interesting is, uh, and we can get more into this, but at least right now in, in a lot of cities, the companies that are deploying these scooters have to pay a fee per scooter that they have deployed, mm-hmm. um, just as kind of like a, a payment to the city. But um, there's a whole mess around all that, so we'll get there. But um, the most interesting thing about the business model in my opinion, is the way, because this was my first question when I started figuring out about these, is how do they keep them charged? Yeah, okay. Right? If you're, you're, 
using the battery power and you're leaving it somewhere random. So obviously there's not necessarily a charger there. So what do you do? Do they really pay um, people to... I'm, I'm thinking the yeah. only way to do this is that you have a charging sensor that says, hey, I'm at 10% battery. Come come mm-hmm. pick me up. Yep, you got oh, it. Oh, man, that seems... That seems... So you, it seems like a, a, a sore spot in the model, right? Where you could sure maybe... Uh, <laughs> maybe make some improvements but yeah that's the way it's set up right now is you pay for or you hire people basically on a contract basis to uh monitor the scooters and when they get low uh 30 percent or lower is when you're eligible to pick up the scooter you know if you or i had signed up to do this we just go with our vehicle snag a scooter bring it to our house charge it overnight and then bring it to a designated drop-off location that's convenient for us the next day and you can get paid anywhere from like 10 bucks to 20, 25 bucks per scooter that you charge. So you can imagine Damn. driving around with a pickup truck and just scooping up scooters. <laughs> you could bad. actually make a viable income um, charging scooters. I, I, I'm actually really hoping that you can set up the drop spot as being your front, the front of your house. Yeah, I'm not really sure how that works. I mean, exactly. it sounds like it could be I'm dangerous. Sure they tell you all that when you. It sounds like it could be dangerous, but the idea of like some guy having like 30 scooters out front, that's it's just fun. parked out front. It's pretty funny. Well, my immediate thought in terms of of the negatives of this model, um, at least from the charging perspective, is now there's a there's a competitive edge here. Let's say you and I are in an area where a lot of these scooters are being used and we're each trying to get paid for charging. I'm slashing the shit out of your tires. Yeah, I'm trying to steal all the scooters that you're going to try to get. <laughs> like, I don't want you to have any. No. I've got, eight, yeah, so, I've got 80 charging ports back home, so I need scooters. But that competitive edge is beautiful in the company's eyes, right? Are you using your power to charge the scooters? I know the yeah. You bring is. it. You bring it into your living room and you charge it overnight. <laughs> okay. That's so the thing about co- the scooters themselves, dude. The hardware that the company, the hardware, is actually a fascinatingly small part of this. Yes, it's what the person's interacting with in the, in the physical sense, but they're buying these scooters on wholesale, like. They're pretty disposable, to be honest, and they yeah. pay for themselves very quickly. So having people huh. drop them wherever the fuck they want, having people bring them to their house to charge them, like it's all it's all factored in, and it's pretty easy to account for. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, um. Yeah. So there's three major companies right now. Okay. Uh, Lime, yeah, Bird, that's... and Spin. Okay. So, and spin is actually the reason I started to look into this. I think I started to say that before and didn't finish, but um, Ford just, I don't know if they bought spin completely or if they just invested, you know, a majority, but basically spin and Ford now have some weird, you know, partnership going on. Hmm. I think Ford is just trying to say, hey, look at our forward thinking mobility solutions. Uh, because spin is no different than any of the other ones. Um, yeah, so <laughs> all the companies are the same. And that's actually a pretty fascinating thing. Is I think Bird was the first one. Um, and the founder of this Bird company, it's in California, of course. 
he was uh, an ex Lyft and Uber executive. I forget his name, but hmm. controversial figure. So he's very well versed in this whole ride sharing, you know, business model. Um, but basically, his whole plan, and I guess this is pretty, uh, you know, it's similar to the way Uber approached things, is let's just drop the scooters in the city, you know, no word ahead of time, just drop them there overnight, basically, and hope that they get adopted quick enough, where when the city figures it out and tries to start removing them, that they've already become adopted enough where people are going to be mad if the city starts removing them. That's basically the whole model. So I can speak to this situation directly. Okay. Uh, You know, uh, being where I am, um, this is what they did in Denver. Mm -hmm. And I don't, their plan didn't work. So I don't know if it's worked in other places. Oh, it's worked. It's worked. Okay. It didn't work here. Oh, yeah. Denver, uh, their reaction. So they, they did the covert drop. That happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, we're talking literally like you wake up one morning overnight. and there's a overnight. there's a line of scooters outside your front door. Yep. it's <laughs> exactly how it happened here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was like that for like a week. Like, mm-hmm. you know, nothing happened for a little bit. But mm-hmm. Denver ultimately rounded up all the scooters and held them hostage. Okay. And they were, and they were. I mean, they were able to round them. I'm, I'm sure people were upset, but ultimately yeah. they rounded up all the scooters, and it took a couple of weeks for negotiations to happen. And mm-hmm. uh, ultimately, you know, they're back on the street now, so they came to okay. a deal. But the the business model of not paying the city didn't work, uh, or unless they always knew they would. But well, that's the thing is, I think they kind of factored in because in I think huh. it was Santa okay. Monica. Okay. Um. Or no, San Francisco was like the first place that Bird launched, and they did that. Um, And I'm sure, you know, San Francisco maybe approached it differently than Denver did. Maybe Denver was more quick to act. Um, But uh, Bird ended up paying like a $300,000, you know, lawsuit um, to, to the city for, you know, the whole, the whole thing, basically, to put it simply. So, um that was just kind of a risk they took and they had to pay for it. But now the, the scooters are very much a thing and going strong. So it was almost like a little uh, drop in the bucket as far as business expenses go. But yeah, you'll definitely see them uh, so, getting like picked up by local officials. And you right. know, if somebody parks one in a position or a location that they decide is, is not okay, they'll just pick it up say that you broke the law and I'm taking it now. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I looked up some information about Denver real quick. Um, mm-hmm. Cause you made, as I was talking that through and, and what you just said, the company, I guess the companies ultimately do expect to pay the city. Yeah. They just factor all that in, which I mean, man, that sucks, but or that's kind of underhanded. And ultimately they must think that they're going to get a better deal if they just throw them in there than if they had approached Yeah, I was was watching some videos um, and they interviewed the CEO of Bird and his, you know, he he beat around the bush a little bit. But basically his thought was, um, yeah, if we approach this in the way that you would normally think where approach the city first and try to get some, you know, 
some approval for this, it just wouldn't happen. So their thought is, uh, you know, that could thwart technical innovation and and modern mobility solutions. So let's just take the, um, what's the the phrase I'm looking for? Uh, you know, ask for forgiveness later, I guess. Um, that type of thing. Looks like Denver fined them forty grand, which is not a lot. So that not was kind of weak. No. And then they <laughs> made them get permits, which mm-hmm. I don't know anything about the permits. So they got more money though, more mm-hmm. than forty grand, um, and abide by a list of rules. So no rule number one though is mm-hmm. no riding in bike lanes. Now that's a rule for the user, not at all a rule that the company would care about. Well, that's one of the major things is if you go on any one of these companies' websites, they have their list of rules, where to park it, where not to ride it, where to ride it, wear a helmet, all these things. But it's just basically a list of suggestions. The only only incentive I, I think I see from the company's perspective is that if people can't ride in bike lanes, maybe they're going to be less... You know, if all you have are bike lanes, then you can't ride them there. Well, it's, you may it's not interesting. Be use the yeah, system. because you can't ride. You shouldn't be riding on the sidewalk. People, of course, do, but that's one of the problems, and it's why people who aren't riding these things are so annoyed by them. Because you get them riding on sidewalks. If a bike lane is there and they allow it, probably the best solution, honestly. Um, otherwise, they're riding in the street, which is dangerous for cars, the people on the scooters, all that stuff. So if you can't ride it on the sidewalk, you can't ride it on the street. Where the fuck are you riding this thing? Well, you do ride in the street. You do ride on the sidewalk. <laughs> That's the problem. Right. Sorry. So, um, so think about it this way. I I got thinking about who's riding these things. First of all, a lot of fucking people because these companies are exploding, and we'll get there in a second. But a lot of people are riding them. But more importantly, who's not riding them? People who are, <laughs> okay, uh, people who aren't early adopters, me and you, um, but physically, people who can't ride them, right? So you might have oh, yeah. older people who aren't necessarily going to hop on a scooter that travels 15 miles an hour and you have to be pretty, you know, quick to, to navigate with. Um, yeah. They have like track. a 200-pound weight limit, so, you know, larger people aren't necessarily oh, yeah. going to be riding okay. them. Um, so you inherit, so no matter what you have people who are never going to be able to ride these things, whereas Uber, everybody could theoretically use. Right. For the most part, let's at least a larger majority. Whereas scooters, you, you get like a, I don't know, it it seems to create more of a, a social divide. So you get a lot of people who are really, really, really annoyed with these things darting around the city all the time. So I wanted to touch on the speed thing. You said 15 miles an hour. That yeah, that probably mm-hmm. is the standard. But mm-hmm. I can tell you that they're all the same. When when um, when you see it in relation to people walking, it's fast. Uh, so there's an there's an open air mall in Denver, mm-hmm. where the center, the only thing that should be going up and down it are the buses, the cops, or bicycles. Mm-hmm. And and obviously people can be walking across. You know, it's not a, there's no cars allowed on this open street. Right, but it is sure. a street. Mm-hmm. Um, Isn't that where things, you and I went? Me, you, yeah. and Jess. Yeah, yeah, where they had the pianos. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's called the 16th Street Mall. 
Okay. Anyway, when people are dipping and dodging with these scooters around pedestrians who are walking, it's quick. I mean, if you were to yeah, run into somebody, it's no quick. And, they, and, that, and that's definitely happened. Yeah. And now I, I was thinking before I said that, that a bicycle, you could easily go as quickly as well. But there's something, to me at least, there appears to be something about uh, the lack of effort required to twist a throttle. Exactly. That makes them somehow... You're not putting any physical work into it. Right. And it's also smaller, so it's easier to kind of forget about the size of it. And you're, you're very nimble. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so anybody can They're hop on one of these. You might get somebody who's really good at riding a scooter, but then it's not stopping anybody who might be really bad at riding a scooter and, and run into somebody or something, hurt themselves or somebody else. Um, so... Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but oh, I, just read right, I just read right here, the city has been emphatic that there's absolutely no scooter riding on the 16th Street Mall. This okay. article was written, which goes against everything. I mean, that's not the case at all. This article was written August 8th this year. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I witnessed people riding these scooters not three weeks ago. Yeah. On the very location that I just mentioned. I mean, with the nature of it, it's pretty hard to regulate. They're just, they're everywhere, and you can pick them up anywhere. And There's cops up, up and down this road, though. Mm-hmm. If cops wanted to be clotheslining people, they could. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so let's think about for a second why they are so popular, right? Why have these things taken off? Um, And a few obvious things are it's faster than walking for sure, right? I bet they're Um, pretty fun to drive. They're pretty fun. I've heard a lot of people say that they're fun. Um, And let's say that you would theoretically be able to bike to work. Nobody wants to show up to work sweaty, especially if you have to wear, you know, like nicer clothes or whatever. So using something like a scooter where all you have to do is hold the throttle, you're not putting in any strenuous effort. So that's a really good one. You can do the same type of transportation, but not break a sweat. Um, And then just the convenience of of being able to leave it anywhere. (laughs) Um, And then from just a... uh, a congestion standpoint you theoretically you're eliminating some of the car traffic you're replacing it but it's a smaller vehicle that's more size appropriate for the situation um so i think what it ultimately comes down to is there's clearly a need and a want it's that it's the way that these companies have gone about deploying them and executing it is definitely you know, you could argue was not the best. Now, the yeah. the other side of that is, had they done the other approach and said, hey, we have this idea, we would like to deploy a million scooters in the city, and here's how it's going to work, and, and um, the city would be like, no. And then, boom, it's over. Yeah, I was, I was thinking, I, initially, I, I didn't like that they, they did that, but mm-hmm. as we've talked further You can about see it, why, right? I can totally see why, and mm-hmm. I actually i am I'm changing my... So I, I think what the hope would be is that okay, there we see a need, we see a place for these things to fit in, but how do we do it effectively? And right. hopefully that would come. Maybe. Well, I was just thinking if you do this once or twice, this whole 
secret operation thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's enough. And then other cities are like, oh, yeah, we're, we'll. And then you can say, and Denver pays us this much, so you right. pay us this much. Yeah. You know, I mean, they've expanded can... a lot, dude. They're, yeah. they're in a lot of cities in the U.S., they're in Europe, they're in, you know, I Asia. I'm willing to bet they're not doing the the secret thing anymore. I'm willing to bet that's over with. Yeah. Because, like, ultimately that's, it's an, while it's effective and I, and I've changed my mind a bit about, Mm -hmm. uh, I can, I can totally see why they did that. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it is fairly capitalist of them. So right on. Um, so when did you, when did you see them show up first? I'm I'm interested to know that. I don't go to downtown Denver all Mm -hmm you know every day or anything um but may was when they were taken off the streets so okay. i probably saw my first one I, after you know i wasn't there when they um you know i wasn't physically you know downtown when um they uh were dropped off or anything and yeah so the first time i saw one would have been the summer uh after they had been you know released from their jail mm-hmm um and they and they aren't where i am so like nobody no at least i have not seen uh, someone drive miles outside of Denver to come. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but would you say that even from your perspective, it was like just boom, all of a sudden, here they are. Oh, yeah. I mean, I read about it like the morning after it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on, uh, I was looking at the Denver subreddit uh, and there the post on top there was like, does anybody know what the fuck these scooters are? <laughs> <laughs> and then... Uh, somebody was like, yeah, they're this. And, and yeah. So uh, I think you'll find this, this part pretty interesting just from a economics standpoint and, and whatever. Um, these companies, dude, they started popping up in 2017 and they, the adoption rate of this just as a service is pretty much faster than any other technological innovation ever. Faster than the internet, faster than smartphones, smash, faster than Uber. Dude, they've, they, <laughs> I don't have a specific adoption rate number specifically, yeah. I guess. Um, but Bird literally launched in 2017 and it's already, it became a $1 billion company in the same year. And it's already worth over $2 billion right now. And the adoption rate of the people using these scooters is just, if you plot it out, it is way faster than any other any other thing that we've seen, basically. I won't dispute that they're catching on. Uh, I, I hope they have solid numbers behind all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, I would just caution against that valuation thing. Mm. Um, two things. One, people are traditionally terrible at valuing things that don't have a market behind them because i don't think Mm -hmm. these are public companies right no this is all venture capitalists just yeah putting it into these companies the other thing is um even if they were made public uh i'll use snapchat as an example when snapchat first went on the stock market Mm -hmm. i mean they got the valuation way wrong and oh yeah for sure that's true immediately that's a good point so uh but that aside a a dollar every time someone clicks on one of these things Mm -hmm. done i mean you're you're you don't even have to charge the 15 cents. Well, I do have some numbers on, on how quickly they pay for themselves. Okay, sweet. This is pretty interesting. Um, so actually, and before I, I mention that, <laughs> from another economic standpoint, most of these companies are buying the same scooter 
from this same Chinese company that's making them. So damn, way to be that company. <laughs> just all of a sudden the orders start coming in. Oh my god, we need to make ten billion scooters. <laughs> <laughs> or are we gonna make ten billion scooters? <laughs> um, yeah. So looking at the scooters themselves. So I think this information comes from Bird, but this is just on average. Um, they claim that looking at their entire fleet, you know, over all these cities, a single scooter is going to get used on average from eight to twelve times per day. Um, and then a scooter, given that, will make roughly $23 a day. And then considering what they pay on wholesale for the scooter, it pays for itself in about two weeks. This is on average. So the scooter's paid off in two weeks of use. And theft and, um, you know, vandalism, which is actually a huge deal because these things are such a nuisance to some people, um, that's factored in. And it's, you know, it's a problem, but it's not... The scooters are, like I mentioned before, such a small financial piece in terms of having to buy them that, uh, that it's just part of it. So I've seen pictures and, and videos, like you'll see... Um, there's a video in Venice Beach. There was like a couple scooters in the canals that people just threw into the river because they were pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know which city this happened in, but somebody rubbed like feces all over a couple of them and, and uploaded nice. pictures to Twitter or something. That's a good one. Yeah, so they get vandalized, but it's part of the part of the model. It's factored in. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they pay for themselves super quick. Um and uh yeah they make a ton of money um let's see so i think um yeah that's that's pretty much it i mean i think we went over most of the cons people uh you know not playing by the rules that these companies theoretically set um so that's what makes them such a nuisance I was just thinking about the future of like, I mean, I guess they're just, they're just here. I was just like, you know, they show it, up and they're explosive seem, right? and all these things, but yeah, it's just the thing. I think they make, they make a lot of sense. I mean, I'm not a, a city resident, so I don't, again, not coming at this from experience, but just looking at some videos and stuff of people who are using them, they seem to be, you know what, a viable option. Gonna, they do. And I don't know why. I guess. I guess ultimately, I was a little put off by their initial practice. But like I said, changing my mind on that. And, mm-hmm. I, and ultimately, I would say, I think it's it's better than a car, right? It's better than a car driving around. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is from a environment standpoint and congestion and just. The only question would you know be you're using a. Actually, I saw an analogy today. It wasn't relative to scooters. It was relative to to cars. But um, when you you're using a vehicle, you're using a 4,000 pound chunk of metal to transport a 180 pound person or something like that, right? Like it doesn't yeah. necessarily, it's not the most efficient method, whereas a scooter. Not only that, but if you think about the resources you're using, you've got rubber, which is hundreds mm-hmm. of, or I don't even know how many years, but it takes a long time to make, you know, the yeah, materials that sure. ultimately turn into rubber. Mm-hmm. You've got oil, which is millions of years. You've got... <laughs> rare metals and all kinds of yeah, shit the electric scooter is definitely more efficient yeah. and environmentally friendly no doubt 
The only question, I suppose, would be where's the power coming from that powers the electric mm-hmm. scooter? But I would, I would take a, a leap of faith it's, here and yeah. say that it's ultimately the net is is far less than a car. Oh yeah, it even is on electric cars versus um, gasoline powered cars, and it depends oh, okay. on where you live. Um, because different states get their power from different sources, of course. California, an electric car is going to be more environmentally friendly than, say, West Virginia. Um, but even still, it works out for cars, so it most certainly works out when you're comparing a car to a little scooter for doing right. the little those little trips, no doubt. Fucking crazy. It is crazy. Um, oh, one other thing I wanted to mention... Um, the scooter's one aspect of it, dude, but the app, the app is a whole nother part of it because Advertising. the apps, you want to get your app on people's phones, right? Because if you're the first, let's say there's actually a bunch of these companies. I mentioned the three big ones, uh, Lime, Bird, and Spin, but there's a ton of others. Um, and they all, weirdly enough, have four letter names. One of the other big ones is Jump. And... They all use the same scooter. They all use the same pricing scheme, dollar to unlock, 15 per minute sense, that is. So That's really what it's coming it, what it's coming down to is can I be the staple app that people download? Because once you download one and set one up, everything else is the same. So why would I why would I so download now, Bird and Spin and be like, oh, they're both here. Which one am I going to use? I'm just going to use the one that I set up. So it's basically, where can I be first? In yeah. what populated area yeah. can I be first? Mm-hmm. So the app is how you do that. Wow, so okay. It's a pretty fascinating system, actually, the whole thing. So, to that, I think Ralph Nader needs to step up to the plate yeah. here and write us a book <laughs> on how we deal <laughs> with these scooters. <laughs> Come to our rescue, Ralph. That would be great. We need you. Yeah, he's uh, he's old at this point, unfortunately. Born in thirty-four. So, what scooter? Huh? <laughs> what the fuck's this scooter? My scooter's right here. It's got four wheels <laughs> and a basket. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, check us out on uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter as well. Yep. We've got the website. In fact, we've got a fancy uh, new addition to the website. Yeah, we do. Check that out. I don't know if you want to tell them about that. Really. Yeah, I just kind of um, started uploading all of the cover art for the episodes just into a gallery view on the site. So when you go on there, you'll see a new tab. I forget what we called it, but just click on there and you'll see um, just a scrolling view of all the uh, the art. So you can look at it all in one beautiful spot. It's amazing what the mind chooses to remember. <laughs> it wasn't I that. Can't remember. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. It's called the art gallery. Whatever random uh, keystrokes I put in when I when I created yeah. it, that was it. Um, got t-shirts out there, of course, on yeah. Amazon. Yeah, just, uh, just Wandering search Bear Wandering Bear Center. Yeah. Yeah, search Wandering Bear Center. Uh, Wandering Bear Center at Gmail is how mm-hmm. you email us. And catch you next week. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of the art. Um, since I'm going through a, uh, a location oh, yeah. change and all that, there might be a few episodes released where the artwork is not consistent with 
art remains to be long. seen, yeah. But there might just be some generic cover art for a few episodes, so don't be alarmed. Well, we had our <laughs> first ever network drop in the middle of this episode, True. so it's a, a time pains. for... Yeah. All right. All right, y'all.